So welcome to another episode of the Friday Film Club. I am joined here today by film critic James Luxford. Uh, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's a pleasure. And uh, I have to say, I don't often have film critics on the podcast, which is a kind of deliberate choice. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but it's 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 nice to have you here. I always I always see you posting stuff, and I have to say, um, as far as film critics go, you are on the the least snobby end of the scale. <laughs> um, that's very kind. Thank you. I um, my job as a film critic is to write for people who uh, may not necessarily know uh, an awful lot about cinema, or may not necessarily be interested in the very deep dive uh, aspect of things. There are, of course, a lot of writers who do wonderful pieces that pick apart every aspect, every nuance. And I've I've written articles like that at all, uh, myself as well. But I think for me, the important thing about what I do is to speak to people who perhaps only go to the cinema once a month or once every two months every six weeks who don't have an awful lot of time and I think the biggest commodity we have in our day-to-day life is our free time and so the people I write reviews for are people who perhaps are going to spend a certain amount of money on a babysitter or only perhaps will have one date night um, every so often and want to know that the two hours they're going to spend plus a dinner plus whatever they're going to do after or before is worth uh, worthwhile. I, I'm always inspired by people, uh, um, writers like Peter Travers from Rolling Stone, who uh, puts him, his own style as a person in the foyer type uh, of of review that mm. um, you know there is a there is a place for um, a sort of highfalutin academic analysis of film. I certainly don't uh, begrudge that, but I think in terms of my film reviews, it's about is the film good? Why is it good? Why is it not good? Uh, why will you like it? Who who might like it? And that requires, I think, speaking in a way that uh, doesn't dumb it down, but uh, certainly communicates something on uh, a more human level. Mm, Absolutely. And I think you hit the nail on the head uh, by saying that, you know, to a lot of people, going to the cinema isn't uh, a regular occurrence. Uh, It sometimes, as you say, can be as as infrequently as once a month or even less so. Um, Mm -hmm. It is is an event. It's a, it's a, a night out. And in those cases... They don't particularly want something arty or something that they have to really think about or read a big essay about afterwards. They they just want something that's going to entertain them, uh, that's going to make them laugh, make them cry, make them scared, whatever they're after. And, you know, it's, it's good that there's... I think there's a new wave of film criticism in recent years that, that is very aware of that. You know, I think there was a period where film criticism became a very inward-looking thing and film critics wrote reviews for other film critics because... You know, as you say, those big analytical pieces are only really good if you if you care about that. And the average show doesn't. Um, yeah, I, I think it's important. You know, what you said was uh, absolutely right about people want something that made them laugh, make them cry. Art house movies can do that. Mm. Uh, and a low budget movie, a foreign language movie, a quote unquote art movie can do all the things you want from a big blockbuster or a movie, uh, you know, a studio movie. And that's where a review can help as well, because you might be a bit intimidated by a, uh, say, for example, I just reviewed the new Pedro Almodovar film, Parallel Mothers. And you might be intimidated by a Spanish language film, uh, which doesn't have any effects, which is about human issues. Uh, in my, it was my job to convey that, no, these this film does actually contain a lot of the things you wish were in Hollywood movies, very well written uh, female lead roles and mm. things that are very relatable. And I think in terms of writing for other film critics or writing for other film experts, it's about also decoding some of the genres that you may not uh, think of for you. I think of uh, something that film criticism has done very well uh, in recent times is promote things like Parasite, which, Mm. you know, 
to the average Joe, you, you would say, might balk at the idea of a South Korean subtitled movie. Not everyone, but I do think there are a percentage of people who, as the director himself said, are intimidated by the one the one inch barrier of subtitles. And so I think um, there's also an inverse snobbery where the people who would perhaps be drawn to a Fast and Furious or a Marvel movie thinks that these movies are not for them. And I think film criticism can help bring down the barrier to that and introduce interesting movies. And that's all I really want to do. I'm not an examiner. I'm not marking a movie or, you know, the, the one of the things I struggle with is star ratings because, you know, how many film points did this score versus this? <laughs> and top tens because you know Barry Norman always said I don't do top tens because it's like saying chalk is good but cheese is better mm. um so for me it's about promoting a movie I really believe in and also you know warning people off mo a movie I think is going to disappoint them you know these movies have multi-million dollar uh advertising budgets in some cases and can make something that's not very good look very good so mm. a uh, a rave has its place and then I, I hope i don't trash something for no reason but if something is very bad there's a place for that as well because as i say you're writing for the people going to the cinema who might not always go to the cinema and you could be introducing someone to a whole new genre or something so there's people who are on the on the line of whether I want to go and see this thing that I wouldn't normally see. And mm. I hope, and some of the best compliments I've ever gotten better than what my writing's like or whatever is I was on the fence about seeing this film, but after reading your review, I checked it out and I loved it. And yeah. that's, that's to me is the goal. Yeah. And that's an excellent way of putting it. And uh, we will talk more about that. Uh, and, and about yourself as we go through the episode, uh, and I guess now is a chance for you to tell us some of your own personal favourites and some of the films that have had the most impact on you. So let's dive into the questions. Okay. Um, and I think my dog definitely wants to have a cameo in this episode today. I was so going to say, what's, what's your dog's favourite film? <laughs> um, uh, I, I don't think he has a favourite film. He has a lot of films that annoy him. Um, All right. He's, he's a Yorkie, so pretty much everything irritates him. Fair enough. As, as Fair you can tell. Um, <laughs> so let's, let's dive in. What is your favourite film of all time? This was a very difficult one to answer because as a film critic, I feel, you know, I know we're not um, I'm trying not to be too snobby about it, but also uh, I don't want to be too obvious about it. And I decided to just go with the honest answer. It's uh, 1994's Pulp Fiction by Quentin Tarantino. It's a movie I watch and get something different from every time. I think for me, Quentin Tarantino, there are some filmmakers who just speak your language film-wise, and he does for me. And uh, I remember, I think every movie fanatic goes through an education sort of a couple of years or two, three years, maybe when they're teenagers, where they just consume everything to do with film. Everything, like for me, uh, growing up in the 90s as a teenager, it was a little more difficult no streaming uh only just started with dvds so you were recording uh vhs tapes off of tv you were renting from blockbuster you were getting every single thing you could um get your hands on and uh for me pulp fiction it was taped off of uh i think bbc2 and i remember watching it late at night and this very visceral reaction to something that I hadn't seen before. Certainly, I'm sure his detractors will tell you what he draws from, what he quote unquote uh, steals from. I'd never seen something that had uh, a non-linear timeline, something mm. where uh, characters dipped in and out. You know, John Travolta's character is the lead in one chapter of the uh, of the movie, and he's just a disposable bad guy in another, and. It, all of it, the, the the dialogue that doesn't necessarily move along the narrative, the cool characters, the cultural references. I just remember with almost like a, an all pressing stop on the VHS machine and just having to have a moment 
because I'd never seen something like that before. And it was my gateway to so many other interesting films. And so mm. it's got a real special place in my heart. Yeah, Pulp Fiction is a classic. And I think uh, it would be on uh, or near the top or at the top of many people's uh, best film lists. Uh, and my, my follow-up question, which I, I think you pretty much answered, is, uh, is Pulp Fiction an anomaly uh, in your um, opinion on Tarantino? Or are you just a Tarantino fan? But... Uh, I think it's hard to like one Tarantino film without liking all of them, right? Yeah, I think um, it's got to that point where you either you either love him or you loathe him. And, you know, <laughs> it, um, it's the 30th anniversary of Reservoir Dogs. And, you know, 30 years in, not, it nine movies, nine official movies hmm. he's made. He has a particular style and he has a particular way of doing things. And that speaks to a lot of people. Mm. And I don't think, you know, I don't think it's an anomaly. I think things like Kill Bill, um, Inglorious Bastards, so many of these movies have so many wonderful scenes in them. And um, I think probably Reservoir Dogs might have taken this spot had I discovered it earlier. I discovered Pulp Fiction first. But even, you know, I, I, this is the only thing by which I can only speak as a fan. I don't really think I can look at Tarantino movies objectively. Mm. And so what I would I would say if I went into full fan mode is, you know, something like Jackie Brown. If you think about him as the hottest filmmaker of the 90s, what's he going to do next after Pulp Fiction? He makes a, uh, a crime thriller with a 40 plus uh, star uh, who was a woman of colour. In the you know in the late nineties that just wasn't happening, and doing something very different, and um, I love that, and I like that he's gone, he's retreated into a nostalgic film now with Once Upon a Time in Los Angeles, you know, kind of almost mourning the Hollywood he grew up in. I just adore the way he tells a story, and uh, not everyone does, and that's okay. I think the most important, I think the most important thing to remember is particularly in the modern world of lists and debates and everything is that not every film is for everyone. I meet people socially who hear I'm a film critic and they get a bit sheepish and they say, I don't know what you'll think of me, but my favorite film is X, whether it's a Studio Ghibli film, whether it is The Devil Wears Prada, whether it's in Fast and Furious. And they always seem a bit relieved when I say, that's fine. <laughs> you can like any film you want. It's not top trumps. It's not, you know, it's whatever you find in cinema that's beautiful or moving or fun. And uh, for me, that's Quentin Tarantino movies. And it's a wonderful thing that other people find other genres, other filmmakers just as wonderful. Yeah. And speaking just as a fan of Tarantino, what what would you love to see as his 10th and allegedly final film? I don't know. I think he's always talked about the third Kill Bill movie um, with the daughter of her, uh, the bride's first victim, as it were, Vinita mm. uh, Green, or the first victim we see in the non-linear timeline. Framing and coming focus there's that wonderful line when the daughter sees her mother killed and the bride says if you still feel raw about this i'll be waiting <laughs> and i'd like to see that come about uh other than that i'm not sure there's so many unmade movies that are possibly not doable now you know we always uh talk about the vega brothers michael madsen's character mr blonde in reservoir dogs and mm -hmm. vincent vega john travolta in pop fiction were brothers uh they are spoiler alert on a 30 year old movie they're both dead um in the characters at least but both actors are still with us but very much older uh, i would have liked to have seen that film when it was possible but as for his final movie in some terms of something original i don't know who knows i think he's he's you know had a real fondness for westerns i think it will be something kind of 70s themed something very nostalgic and um, yeah, he's a filmmaker who I think for the last 15 years at least has not seen anything in contemporary cinema that's 
inspired him. He's always gone back to the past, World War Two, you know, slavery, United States, late 60s, uh, Hollywood. It will be something along those lines, um, uh, but I can't wait to see it. Yes, and I think uh, we're all uh, in anticipation as to what's going to come next from, from Tarantino. Uh, I think he's... he's expectation is high because we're all it's apparently his last one so we're, we we need like a big blowout really and on that note uh, thinking completely at the other end um, what is your least favorite film this was a tough one as well because you know as a film critic you try and find something about everything mm. and um you have it is a uh difficult thing to truly hate a movie to truly find nothing i can recommend about it you know so many of my negative reviews were it's not for me or it you know it wasn't as good as i anticipated something that i found no merit in was a 2008 film called the happening by uh, m night Shyamalan. and <laughs> um i'm not a walker i don't walk out of movies I never come so close. Uh, I just found it unpleasant. I found it uh, really grisly. Um, for, and one of my least favorite genres is horror. I'm a bit squeamish. I'm, a, uh, I'm very easy to jump in my seat. And it's not very cool when you're surrounded by your uh, learned critic contemporaries. Um, but horror is, is, is something I enjoy rather than enjoy. And so I don't write an awful lot about it. But I know a good one when I see one. I love things like Psycho. I love The Shining. I love the big horror classics. But The Happening, for me, put you through quite an unpleasant experience for no reason. If you are going to see people committing suicide, essentially, there has to be a really good story behind it that makes people makes people um you know taking their own lives in front of your eyes worth that journey and the fact it was for me such a bad story made me feel a little bit like i'd gone through this for nothing i would compare it to something like bird box which does have a much better story a similar kind of tone a similar kind of threat but there is at least a story behind it a struggle that feels worth going through and i remember you know just coming out of that movie truly feeling like i'd wasted my time and uh you know i met m night Shyamalan. then i read something that said he was purposefully trying to make a bad film and i've never kind of taken issue with a, a news report so strongly before because i think well that's <laughs> you've either you know committed fraud or you're lying because yeah, i don't yeah. think anyone sets out to make a bad film i think even you know the biggest flops in cinema history at some point somebody thought well we're going to try and make this the best we can and i felt cheated in a lot of senses and uh, i don't like feeling that in movies yeah and that's entirely valid i've got my own thoughts on uh, m night Shyamalan. Uh, I, I'm fairly passionately against him as a filmmaker. I think he's a one-trick pony, and I think sometimes it works, but I think most of the time I'm left feeling a little bit deflated because he's gotten caught up in this idea of uh, make something a little bit tense for an hour and a half and then throw a big twist at the end. And I, 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 it, it worked with The Sixth Sense, but then when yeah. you get to his like fifth movie... And then his tenth movie, and he's doing the same thing. Yeah, yeah, I'm on it. yeah. I'm, I, I just, um, I like some of his movies. I don't, I'm not. Uh, it's one of my favourite. This is a bit name droppy, but I was interviewing uh, Alfred Molina, uh, the actor, the Doctor Doctor Octopus actor from mm. uh, Spider Man, and it was for another movie he was making around the same time as uh, the Last Airbender. And uh, someone asked him, well, uh, I asked him, sorry, um, you know, have you ever, what's the last film that made you laugh? And he said, uh, unintentionally, The Last Airbender, because him <laughs> and his wife were watching this movie, and it's not a good movie. But uh, there is the line in it, I always knew you were a bender. 
which make which means one thing in America, but means something quite quite <laughs> different in the UK. And him and his wife, who I assume are British, uh, yeah, I know he is, um, but they're both in the cinema. And apparently, his wife went over to him and whispered, "Whoops." And uh, yeah, it, it's it's one of it's one of those examples where you know some of his movies just misfire so spectacularly and he does have good i like unbreakable i like six Sense, as you say i have a soft spot for the village not a lot of people like that movie mm. it, it does seem that he kind of ran out of ideas at some point <laughs> and i think it's maybe our own fault for for making gods out of people very quickly uh, I think that's a problem in celebrity society anyway, but particularly in film, we have a ha habit of making deities out of people who've made one really good film. Mm. I suppose something like that would be um, Josh Frank, who made a very good move superhero movie and then went straight into uh, Fantastic Four. And that was a step too far because he'd made an independent film and then went into this multi-million dollar movie that was perhaps a step too far. And this person who, you know, he immediately had Star Wars movies lined up and um, all of these blockbusters hovering around him. Then he made a not so good film and they all went away. <laughs> and I, I don't know, it, it's something that happens particularly with young male directors where we're always looking for the next sort of wunderkind and it can be difficult and i think you know m night Shyamalan, he's made some good movies he's made some terrible movies but i think it's an example of which is a bit hypocritical after everything i've said about tarantino but it's um it's an example of not putting people on too high a pedestal i think mm. yeah absolutely and i think we're 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 more at fault of doing that in in more recent years uh, I feel like there's a bit of a desperation because every generation wants to find the next huge thing, like the next best yeah. director of all time. Um, and uh, arguably, you know, there's perhaps not a single person who in the last 10 years has really stood above the rest that, that we could hold up and like do that with. I think there's, there's, there's candidates, but mm. we're in an industry now that avoids risk. The reason you have these breakout directors and stars and genres is because someone went, all right, no one's done this, but we're going to try it anyway. I think you've got the Safdie brothers who did Uncut Gems, uh, Good Time. You know, they more or that, you know, at any time someone questions Robert Pattinson as the next Batman, I say, go watch Good Time. It's uh, it's a, an example of what he can do as an actor. So those, you know, the Safdie brothers are, are really good directors. Greta Gerwig, I think, is a, a really, a really interesting director. Damien Chazelle, La La Land, Whiplash. He's an interesting director. But uh, as you say, it's more difficult for people to become these sensations now because we've have this idea of, you know, a movie, I, I call it Slumdog Millionaire Syndrome, in that something gets a bit of um, hype and people assume it is for every single person who goes in that cinema. Mm -hmm. And they're not. Marvel movies aren't for every single... They're for more people than most because they deal with more universal themes, more entertaining aspects. But not every movie is for everyone. And I get it every year, the new favourite Oscar movie, someone comes to me and says... Well, I didn't enjoy it. And you're like, well, Birdman is a very idiosyncratic movie. It's a very unique story. Moonlight is a very individual story that mm -hmm. isn't going to be for everyone. And movies shouldn't be. That's why we have more than one screen in a cinema. So I would, I would like to see more directors given chances to make those kind of interesting movies. I think there are studios out there that are letting them do that. Yeah, but yeah. Um, I have no problem. I really enjoy Marvel movies. I particularly enjoy the recent Marvel movies. But I don't want independent cinema to just be a training ground for the next Marvel director. And um, yeah. I think a way to come to the next Tarantino, the next Spielberg, would be to make more space for those types of movies, which certain places are doing. 
Yeah, I I agree completely. Uh, let's move on and talk a bit more about you personally now. So, which film or TV character do you most relate to? This was a really tough one again because it becomes a bit like a personality test, doesn't it? I think you know, there's a lot of characters that I think are very very cool. So my first my first thought was someone like Harley Quinn from the Suicide Squad or Michelle Pfeiffer's Catwoman, which I think is one of the most interesting villainous roles ever done because it was Joker before Joaquin Phoenix's Joker, this person who's just going through a breakdown. Uh, someone like Edith from Ghost World, the 2001 movie. I think these are characters I think are cool rather than necessarily reflect who I am. So I'm going to go with a character from a 2009 movie called Whip It, uh, directed by Drew Barrymore and uh, starring Elliot Page. It was made before he came out, so he's playing a female character called Bliss Cavender. And uh, Bliss Cavender is someone who is a little bit a little bit of an oddball, uh, a little bit prone to making very human mistakes and, you know, letting people down in certain ways. But she finds this world that not everyone understands, but makes her feel accepted, whole, whatever. And it's the world of roller derby. She finds a, uh, a team of really badass female roller derby um, competitors, I suppose, um, led by a wonderful Kristen Wiig and with a lot of great actors in there as well. And it's not so much that I am a passionate roller derby fan, but uh, I understand the passion for something, finding something. Uh, there's a line when she's pleading with her parents who want her to become a pageant queen and they discover her love for roller derby and are completely against it. And she turns around and she says almost at the top of her lungs, I am in love with this. And I know what it is to be in love with something. I know what it is to you know, tell my parents, well, I want to be a film critic. And that is not necessarily something that comes with a clear career path. And... Um, <laughs> There's a lot of back and forth. I think anyone who does anything with passion that requires passion also has to go through a lot to achieve it. And I understand those kind of that kind of um, motivation, uh, the need to do something because it's for whatever reason it makes you complete. And I really love that character. I really love the way he plays that character, Elliot Page, and. It's just so relatable to me. And I know I've spoken to a lot of people who are passionate about particular things, music, uh, you know, media production or writing, and they found something in that movie. Um, so that would be my favourite. Yeah, that's a, that's a great choice. And it's one I've, I completely forgot about. But uh, yeah, nonetheless, I need to give that a rewatch. And uh, sort of in the same vein, uh, if your life was a movie... Mm. Who would play you? Um, I would say it's a difficult one because I am non-binary and there is uh, acting is a very binary profession as the best actress and actor uh, award categories tell you. So I've gone for Tilda Swinton because uh, a very androgynous look, but also I've seen her play a uh, genderless ancient one in Doctor Strange. I've seen her play a very old batty heiress in uh, the, the Grand Budapest Hotel. I think she can play anyone. And I think she could probably give me a go as well. Yeah, I mean, she definitely needs to have a bit of the um, uh, de-aging um, work done to, to <laughs> I think, match, match your age. No disrespect to Tilda Swinton. She looks very good for her age, but uh, I think she's got a few years on you. Um, yeah, um, I, I couldn't believe she, I think she's 60, isn't she? I think um, she looks fantastic. I certainly uh, won't look that great when I get to her age. But um, <laughs> more than that, just a terrific performer, a chameleon on screen, who is just so interesting in everything she does. And uh, I, yeah. I, I think it'd be a great honour to be played by her. Yeah, well, Tilda, if you're listening... There's your offer. But uh, uh, on the subject of being non-binary, how, how did you 
feel like that has impacted your life because it's only in very recent years that this idea of, of gender assignment versus gender identity has become recognised as, as two distinct things. How, how have you found that that's impacted you? Um, I'm very lucky to work in a, a place that is quite sort of artistic, uh, art leaning, you know, even sort of the PR people we deal with, they deal in cinema. And um, so it's never really been an impediment necessarily. Uh, I think it is an anxiety really that I entered this profession as a presenting as a cisgender male and with all the privileges that come with that. And um, it's an odd thing to say privilege to me because I was living as someone else, but I can't deny that it's probably easier going to, through any industry as a as, uh, cisgender male. And so when I came out, I only sort of started really presenting um, who I really was in the last two, three years. Uh, professionally and I'm very happy that it's not really impacted on me professionally too much I don't know because I'm you know I'm self-employed I, I work for a lot of places I have certain jobs that are regular but generally it's about pitching ideas to different places and I'm very lucky to have written all for all manner of places and broadcasted for all over the world I don't know what I've missed out on as it were, you know, yeah. if, if someone says no, I have to take it the word that it's not particularly for them. Or if I don't get a call to be on a television program, I have to assume that that opportunity wasn't available and that they just didn't look at me and go, no, not them. So I don't know what necessarily that's cost. I know certainly the reason I'm not on Twitter anymore is because of those, that difference. I think if you find if you say something that is disagreeable to someone, suddenly your difference becomes uh, a target. And uh, certainly there were, there was, um, without bringing things down too much, feedback, should we say, or messages that uh, ultimately made being on that platform not worth it. Mm. Uh, and so that was, a, that was a scary thing to come off of Twitter, which is a big thing for journalists which was how I got a lot of my work, but ultimately it had to be a uh, decision for my own mental health that wouldn't have happened if, you know, I've got a, uh, I've got a headshot still in for a lot of my publications that's me in a suit and looking like a cisgender male. And I, I had no problem with that. I wasn't necessarily lying as a journalist when I looked like that, but that's not who I am. And I do wonder that if there's one perception of me from those outlets, then there would be, for example, when I went on BBC News as myself in a slightly louder outfit, in a slightly more uh, feminine presenting aesthetic. So it's difficult. You don't, I know particularly the people who don't appreciate who I am in the street and in online, but I don't know in terms of my work, what that's quote unquote cost me. I know I'm much happier writing now and I think I'm a better writer for living honestly than I was when I wasn't happy with myself. I, I think if you can be comfortable and, and with yourself and, and, and authentic, that, that shines through in, in whatever you do, whether you're a writer or a creator of anything. Yeah. Um, and I, I think as well, as you, you touched on uh, a short while ago, it's, we're still in this society where, you know, even the Oscars, they, they gender their categories. You have a best yeah. actor and a best actress. You know, it feels like we're kind of past that because, you know, we, we recognise now that, that people uh, can, like um, you yourself identify as, as they, them, I identify as he, him. Um, some people identify as, as she her. We're, yeah. in, we're in this place where it doesn't it doesn't really matter. But those notions of separating people by gender just feel outdated now. Mm. Um, and it's interesting how important that is to some people, how much they are defined by those structures. Because I don't think having they them eliminates he him or she her. Uh, there aren't fewer seats at the table we just get a bigger table mm. and 
it's difficult and I think it clashes with so many other issues particularly in the area of film with the best actor best actress we've talked about merging those categories before and someone quite rightly put how do we avoid just having nine men and Meryl Streep in the best actor uh, category how do we avoid all of the diversity issues that the Oscars and so many other award ceremonies have had if you're giving out fewer awards if those awards which are very valuable to actors to studios to productions to the release of a film you know I don't know what it is now but a best picture move award added something like 20 million dollars to a film's box office because certain people would only go to the cinema once a year and they would go to see whatever in one best picture um I don't know what that is in the era of streaming and of you know the pandemic and everything but it certainly adds a dollar amount that people are studios are willing to put massive campaigns behind and Netflix even spend an awful lot of money getting their movies their actors uh considered you know that's why it's for your consideration I'm an awards voter myself and there's a lot to put into getting your attention at the right time so when those economics are involved if we reduce those acting roles there has to be safeguards to ensure that everyone is considered and I don't it's a really complicated thing because of course I want something a little bit more fluid in the way that we look at the structures of gender I also don't want my freedom or my recognition to come at the expense of anyone else so I think in a lot of areas there is a conversation to be had about making more space making more um, having more consideration for everyone and deconstructing a lot of those binaries that we built up yeah and I, I think if we all start thinking in that way um, then I think the future is gonna is gonna be a lot brighter um, and mm. a lot more uh, a lot better uh, representative um, of, of today's climate but I whilst we look forward to that uh, let's reminisce and look backwards and uh, discuss your most nostalgic film. Oh, we're going to end with a couple of dubious titles, I should say, because I've, I've got, I know your next question. Um, <laughs> so my nostalgic film is the classic. Cla now, I, you know, we're talking not too much art house, but I had to bring out the very unique 1987 movie, Masters of the Universe. <laughs> it is the big screen live action version of He-Man starring Dolph Lundgren as He-Man coming to Earth and meeting a, uh, a teenage girl who's played by Courtney Cox of Friends fame. This was certainly before she found Friends. Um, and fighting the evil Skeletor, which is played with Shakespearean commitment by Frank Langella in very wobbly <laughs> prosthetics. Basically think Conan the Barbarian crossed with Star Wars with about a tenth of the budget with apparently an actor who couldn't speak English at that point. Dolph Lundgren, a very intelligent man. Uh, I believe he has doctorates and things, very um, complicated things I could never understand. At that point, his English was not so good. And so you can hear that in his pronunciation. Apparently arrived on set very much like um, the actor who played Goldfinger in the Bond movies. Couldn't speak English. He had to have someone dub over him. Mm -hmm. Dolph Lundgren, I believe, uh, wasn't quite there, but still has, you know, certain pronunciations are a little bit off and give He-Man a little bit of a um, unusual uh, timbre. But it's just, it's just a delightful mess um if you go into the the making of it you know the toy makers didn't want he-man killing anyone in um in, on screen so they had this entirely violence-free cut and then they saw it and how much money was potentially at risk and they said okay can he kill somebody so there's these kind of very stormtrooper-ish 
robots that come in that he can dispose of without you know killing a person there's a set that looks massive but they didn't use half of it because they didn't have the money there's a conclusion that where there's a final battle where it's just two actors and one light because they'd run out of money and they had to break <laughs> into the set with a light and two actors and film this very kind of guerrilla style filmmaking because they just had no cash and the story's corny the but it's just delightful it's the first movie i ever watched in the cinema i was maybe four years old i went with my dad and it's always had a special place in my heart um are you talking about nostalgic movies it's campus christmas it is ludicrous in all of the right ways it's very painfully 80s um and i just adore it it's a cult movie I think um, if you were to show it to someone now, I always think of a lot of these movies that um, are considered cult classics. If you were to show them to someone who doesn't have that upbringing with them, mm -hmm. uh, that kind of show someone like the, the Goonies, for example, there's going to be a lot of modern people who are going, why are they making fun of the kid who's overweight? What? That's awful. How can you watch it? And you're like, well, we grew up with it. And, yeah. you know, Back to the Future, extraordinary film. There are some things in there that probably wouldn't fly right now. Mm -hmm. um, and you have to view it with that context. For me, though, however, Frank Langella, a very celebrated, award-winning actor, Frost Nixon, all of that stuff. He approaches this film like he is playing Hamlet and takes it incredibly seriously. And I think it's just wonderful. He's in the middle, he's this very good, very polished, very considered actor in the middle of this complete mess and decides, I am going to go off piste. I am going to pretend this is the best movie ever made. And it's a really intriguing performance if you if you ignore the fact that he's made up like a skeleton. And, um, uh, you know, it's inspired some filmmakers. I know a lot of blockbuster filmmakers aspire to have their villains do a Skeletor, as it were, this kind of grandstanding movie. And um, I was lucky enough to interview him uh, years later and say to him, like I'm sure a lot of other people have said to him, it's a movie that I know you may not like or be particularly proud of, but I grew up with it and it introduced me to cinema in general and I'm very fond of it. And he lit up and said he was very fond of that movie. First of all, he was paid very well and that movie, you know, paid for, I'm sure college tuitions or mortgages or something like that. And so as a working actor, he was very fond of it. But also he said, I really like the role. I really like the challenge of playing a cartoon villain in a literal sense. And he said, one of my favorite lines is, uh, how does it feel, He-Man, the loneliness of good? Does it compare to the loneliness of evil? And you think, in isolation, forgetting that he is on a floating platform in an 80s street, talking to He-Man, <laughs> That's a really good line. Mm. And I don't know, there's little things like that that are just delightful. And I think there's space for everything in a film fandom. And for every uh, Pulp Fiction or Whiplash or uh, Al Moldobar film that I adore, there is something about Masters of the Universe that I just keep coming back to. And for anyone that has not seen that film, that is one hell of a pitch. Just <laughs> <laughs> um, and I don't think we need to add anymore. That I mean, yeah, I I agree with your sentiment entirely. And if you have not seen it yet, just just go and find it somewhere and, and watch it. I I don't know what it says about me that I defended that more passionately than I've defended Quentin Tarantino. <laughs> but there's you know it hits you in your childhood. I guess you you know the first movies you find. Um, my my nephew at the moment is obsessed with Will Smith and because he watched old reruns of The Fresh Prince mm -hmm. and he's seen, as I suppose, Men in Black and things like that. And, you know, when he's my age, he's 10 now. Um, so in a couple of decades time, he will probably be defending Will Smith's worst films. 
as passionately as I defend Master of the Universe. It's about where you come from, and these, and that's a wonderful thing about movies. Yeah, and I think you know that, as you said, the films that we grew up with and the first films we watch always stick with us. Uh, yeah. Like for me, uh, you said that that was the first film we saw in the cinema. For me, it was The Rescuers Down Under. Um, oh. <laughs> and it was a similar kind of age to you, about sort of four or five, I think I was. And yeah, I I know it's not a great film, but I've I've got it on DVD and I I stand by it because it just hits mm. hits, hits that little nerve, you know. Mm. We've got at home. We you know my grandmother used to buy us videotapes for from I don't know charity shops or news agents or something. Mm. These very kind of strange. I'm assuming foreign-made cartoons, uh, and we got a tape of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, which was terrifying to me. It was this kind of jagged, almost horror-like animation, and the White Witch, the villain in that, gave me nightmares. To my sister, it is such a nostalgic movie, and I think that, I think she, like you say, she's still got that in her um, DV collection, or streaming collection or whatever, because she has to watch it and it's once every now and again. Muppet Christmas Carol, that's a big one in our family yeah. as well, because it's where it finds you at a particular point. Kids aren't looking for perfection. They're not looking for tight character development or expert camera angles. They're looking to be entertained, and some yeah. movies do that beautifully even if you scratch beneath the surface and there are flaws there which takes us very nicely on to our last question which is your guilty pleasure it's a tough one because i'm one of the people that thinks there's no such thing in some senses but i suppose if you were i am quite fond of the jackass movies again that's age it came to me at the end i have a really juvenile sense of humor you know <laughs> I, I, it really hasn't matured um so people being you know hit in very intimate places for the purposes of comedy still makes me chuckle um but i think my ultimate would be one I've only recently come back to, and that would be 1995 Showgirls. It is um, a very, very interesting movie. Think some, an epic-like casino or something like that, like a rise and fall story, but set in the world of Vegas Showgirls. <laughs> and just... I don't even know where to begin. It's the absolute scream. It, it Nothing seems to go right. The lines are delivered with so much energy and so much intensity, but they're complete rubbish. <laughs> and it's just a marvel to see. It's become, in some ways, it's better to be awful than mediocre. And I think this is a prime example where something so grim and so badly executed becomes just wildly entertaining and this kind of so properish uh, storyline unfolds over the course of far too long a running time with these gregarious sets and these serious issues that are so badly handled that they don't particularly come across as they should um, and, that, you know, that's just whatever your guilty pleasure is. I think it's something that maybe you can see the deficiencies in, but you're just having a whale of the time. I think there are very, a lot of very great movies that you perhaps aren't going to watch over and over again. I remember reading a tweet that said it was before the Academy Awards and a journalist said only three days until no one ever talks about Birdman again. <laughs> and I think that's no knock on Birdman. It's a superb film, but it's not one you're probably going to throw on again and again and again. And those yeah. big award movies do tend to get forgotten. I, you know, unfortunately for something like Moonlight, again, remarkable film. It's not one you're throwing on over and over again. Mm. And Whiplash, unfortunately, which is a, a movie I adore, but it's very intense. And the reason a lot of people throw on a movie is to be entertained, to perhaps not think too much. There are movies that are switch your brain off moments. And that's why these films become sort of 
so pleasing in a sense i think also the room why that became such a, a huge hit it's mm. not something anyone is in denial about the quality of it it's no one's having that pub conversation about the merits of the room it's <laughs> or, or of showgirls for that matter it's just a delightful mess and um and yeah i, I can't i can't put it any simpler than that and on that note, I, I think we need to we need to wrap up. That is some excellent answers. And yeah, I think Showgirls and uh, Master of the Universe is uh, two of the most obscure uh, answers I think we've had for this category. <laughs> but yeah, I, I completely get your sentiment. Like I, I love Whiplash as well, one of my favourites. Mm-hmm. And you're right. I think the, the, whether you want to call it a guilty pleasure or, or not, there are those films that... Um, despite its flaws, they just make you feel happy. Yeah, and I, I, I completely get that with, you know, as much as I sigh at Fast and the Furious 23 or whatever, those are movies where you can kind of switch things off and, mm. and just watch the cars explode. And um, like you say, I, I, I adore Whiplash. That is a panic attack of a movie <laughs> and not one you could watch on an average Saturday night, as magnificent as it is. Mm. And there is, so there's a space for everything. As I said earlier, there's a reason there's more than one screen at a cinema because there are so many movies that fulfill so many roles. And that's brilliant. Yeah. Well, it has been an absolute delight uh, getting your answers, James. And before I let you go, do tell everyone where they can connect with you and where they can read your stuff. Well, uh, you can read my stuff, uh, my reviews, I suppose, cityam.com is where I'm, uh, I'm film editor for the London newspaper City AM, uh, and you can find my reviews online there. Uh, I have a page on Facebook, James Luxford Film Journalist, uh, which are all my latest work. I'm a uh, broadcaster for the BBC. If you really need to know everything, single thing I do, jamesluxford.co.uk. What I'd love everyone, if you've enjoyed what I've said or what I've talked about, I'd love you to go on BBC iPlayer. I made a TV episode for the BBC series Inside Cinema, and the episode is called The Gay Best Friend. It looks at the trope of the gay best friend in cinema. It's on iPlayer now, about eight minutes long. Uh, I narrate over it. So uh, if you don't find my voice too disagreeable uh, i think i'm very proud of that and i'd love you to check it out on iplayer now yep and we will put links to all of that in the show notes so you have no excuse not to check that out uh james thanks again so much it has been a pleasure and uh, let's get you back for a sequel sometime thank you love to that's it for this episode of the friday film club i do hope you enjoyed it and of course you can listen back to all previous episodes wherever you get your podcasts and remember as well to connect with us on Twitter and Instagram at The Fry Film Club. We will, of course, post links to all of our guest info in the show notes. So look out for that as well. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.